Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have a very interesting show, very special and very pleased to have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with us today to talk about his work well with vaccines, his latest documentary on medical racism, and uh, we'll be going into that. I first want to give a little bit of a background. Many of you already know him, of course. Robert F. Kennedy is, of course, the uh, son of former Senator and Attorney General uh, Robert F. Kennedy and nephew of former President John F. Kennedy. He is an attorney, an environmental activist, syndicated radio talk host, and is the co-founder and president of, this is going back in time a bit, the Waterkeeper Alliance, an environmental protection organization focused on the preservation and conservation of water resources. Most recently, he became the chairman of the Children's Health Defense Organization, which provides an in-depth education and information about health, the current trends toward vaccines, information you will not find in the mainstream media, or and he highlights the major concerns we all need to know about these vaccines. And uh, further, it's as it would stand to reason, Bobby is oftentimes called an anti-vaxxer, uh, which anyone else, of course, has the right to be as well. However, more accurately, I like to describe it as he is asking deep questions about the safety and efficacy of vaccines, which the medical establishment and media just don't seem to appreciate. Today's show is going to be looking at largely his latest film, a documentary called Medical Racism, The New Apartheid, which is a searing look at the abuse largely of people of color by the medical establishment and by our government. It is painful, it is harrowing, I've seen it a few times, and it tells the story of systemic abuse of power, specifically aimed at Black Americans, young and old. So, Bobby, welcome to A Better World, a pleasure to have you. Your work is excellent and so needed and called for these days. Um, tell us a little bit, if you would, about what inspired your taking on the subject of medical racism. I know that your family, you and family have been involved in the civil rights movement and an advocate for decades, generations really. Um, so just give us a little bit of an idea of what was well, behind this. You know, this is something I've been writing about for a long time because when you start, and you're right, I'm not anti-vaccine. Uh, I've always said that. Uh, that pejorative of calling me anti-vax is a, uh, you know, is an industry talking point, and it's a strategic, um, you know, insult to try to marginalize me, to characterize me, mischaracterize me, to vilify me as a crazy person. Yes, and as a dangerous person that nobody want to listen to, um, and you know, the the impulse behind that is to try to make sure to derail debate, make sure that we don't have a civil, kind-hearted, polite discussion about, um, you know, about uh, that allows people to question orthodoxies and to talk about science. And we ought to, you know, those are things that are very important in our democracy. 
And in medicine, medicine is not a good place for authoritarianism. Medicine is about listening to people, about um, testing ideas, about subjecting them to the culture of debate, and about trying to um, develop the newest techniques and treatments and to diagnose illness by listening to people. And, exactly. I mean, it's supposed um, to be a uh, rational intellectual discourse. That's what science is. That's what medicine is. And the government is supposed to be behind the highest level of those when it funds different programs and projects. But that has been seemingly virtually the opposite case. And I, I mean, I want to just say here for us at A Better World that uh, from our point of view and many, many others, you are actually a hero for having stood up against tremendous odds uh, in this world of people who just want to, as you said, speak badly of you and try to discredit you on any level they can. But please know that there are so many, literally millions of people that are completely championing what you're doing with the children's health defense and all of the work that you're doing. So I know you know that, but I just wanted to make it completely explicit. And we here at A Better World are among certainly those advocates. So uh, I'm sure you well, appreciate whatever help you can get. <laughs> well, the, um, you know, the issue of medical racism was something that I've written about many, many years because when you first started looking at the science, one of the things that is striking is that there is there's a well-documented and disproportionate um, level of vaccine injury among Black Americans. And we've seen this for many years, and there's also, and the agencies know about it, CDC knows that, and has actively tried to hide that from Black Americans. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, in, uh, in 2004, 2003, 2004, uh, CDC did a huge study on the MMR vaccine. And to try to exculpate it from charges that vaccines were causing autism, CDC, for, for, um, for reasons I won't go into in detail now, had done an internal study. And the internal study showed that vaccines that had mercury in them particularly the hepatitis B vaccine was associated with an 1135% greater chance of getting an autism diagnosis. And then among kids who got that vaccine during the first 30 days of life compared to children who didn't or who got it later. Mm -hmm. And that was called the first Stratton study. It was an internal study that CDC never released, but they tried to hide it from people. And, um, a later study showed that if that, that black kids who got the that same vaccine, the hepatitis B vaccine, the first 30 days had a 53% greater chance of getting of getting an autism diagnosis later mm -hmm. in life. CDC by 2004 knew that the mercury vaccines were causing severe neurological damage, including autism. And but they believe the MMR vaccine was safe and that a lot of parents blame the MMR vaccine for getting their children autism, but CDC, and this is according to CDC's top scientists, senior scientists, 
of Bill Thompson that the MMR vaccine is given on the same day as several mercury vaccines. The CDC believed that parents who were making an observation between the MMR vaccine and autism were actually seeing the impacts of the mercury vaccine and the MMR vaccine was not causing autism. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, and all ordered it. So they believe that doing a real study on the MMR vaccine, a genuine study, could exculpate that vaccine and discredit all the people who were blaming it. And so they did a study and they had five of their top scientists who were involved in the study, including Bill Thompson, who was supposed to be the primary author, and Frank DiStefano, who was the head of the Immunization Safety Office at CDC. And they looked at children in Georgia, which is where CDC is headquartered. Mm -hmm. And when they first wanted the data, the raw data came back. The researchers immediately were struck by the fact that children who got the MMR vaccine, black boys, were 350% greater chance, more at risk for getting an autism diagnosis than whites or black boys who didn't get it within the first 30 months of getting And those researchers were awarded by their boss, Frank DeSafano, to come in to bring all the data on the black kids into a conference room at the CDC and to destroy it there. So um, we, so that's, uh, and, and they published the article, which is called DeSafano 2004, and that article is the main bulwark for the CDC's assertion that vaccines don't cause autism. And they knew when they did that, that the vaccines were associated with big autism signals in black boys. And in 2010, um, one of the big promoters of vaccines, Greg Poland, mm-hmm. from the Mayo Clinic, who was one of the pangerins of vaccinology, did a study that looked at the MMR vaccine and the response, particularly of black people. And he found something that shocked him and that shocked the medical community, which was that blacks apparently, because they have a essentially a more robust immune system than whites, hmm. were getting double the antibody response the same amount of antigens. In other words, the antigen is the viral particle that they injected with to provoke an antibody response. And when they inject you with that antigen, that antigen from measles, the antigen from mumps, the animals, it's a viral particle of that disease. They're calibrating the amount they give you to promote, promote a specific antibody response. They don't want to go too far and provoke too much antibody response. Because if you do that, you can you can tip the patient into autoimmunity, where where their bodies start saying, "Yes, oh, everything is dangerous, and I need to start attacking my own organs." And that is where uh, juvenile diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, Graves' disease, Crohn's disease, and Beret, those are all autoimmune reactions, and, and that's why you have to very carefully calibrate the antibody response. What they found out was that blacks had double the antibody response to whites, the same amount of antigen. 
which means blacks were getting too much. And that may be because all of many, many studies that indicate that blacks are disproportionately injured by vaccines to whites. And everybody knew about this study because it was the Mayo Clinic and because Drew it was a vaccine developer who led the study and a big defender of vaccines. And so the question is, what do we do about this? Do we tell black people, do we cut the antigens and make a different vaccine for black people? Reduce the dosage. Yeah, but, um, and they decided in the end to do nothing. And so to this day, 10 years, a decade later, blacks are still getting a vaccine that the medical community knows is not suitable for them. And there were many, many other examples in the early 90s. Um, the Los Angeles Times broke a story that the CDC had been conducting an experiment with a very high uh, um, measles vaccine. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And they had done it. They, they had they had experimented in four populations, one in Cameroon in West Africa, which is, of course, a Black population, another in Ghana in West Africa. The third one was in Haiti. And the fourth one, the fourth group that they were giving this experimental and very, very dangerous. In L.A.? Was, yeah, in L.A. and South Central. And they gave it to 1,500 Black kids in L.A. And it killed a lot of girls. That vaccine killed girls. And, um, and CDC had to pull it eventually. Uh, they didn't tell any of the parents. And people did not know that they had been experimented on um, until the Los Angeles Times broke that story. Many, many, many other stories like that that are in the- Which of course movie. we go into in the film in some detail, which makes it all the more searing and harrowing as I was describing. But you know, you also have a background from your family and yourself personally in the world of government. Now at the risk of sounding naive, how is it that none of this has been brought to the attention or if it has been brought to the attention of Congress, there has been so little action. For instance, I understood that there was an effort to bring Dr. Thompson in to testify to a Senate subcommittee hearing, and it just got nowhere. Is that because uh, so much of the Congress is in the pocket of big pharma? The pharmaceutical companies um, are the biggest lobbyists on Capitol Hill. So the, you know, I've been suing oil companies for 40 years. Sure. You know, assume that that they own Congress. It's yeah. very, very difficult to get any kind of legislation through Congress. Yeah. Um, because particularly the Republican Party, but also the um, oil state Democrats from Oklahoma, from Alaska, um, uh, from Louisiana, Louisiana, and from Texas, um, gave them, you know, who are chairs of these committees and the minority, uh, you know, uh, uh, leader of those committees. Our version of the key committees are all virtually controlled by the oil industry. Yes. And so they're very powerful, but pharmaceutical companies give double oil and gas, which is the second biggest contributor, and about four times what the defense and aerospace gets. So they're by far the biggest lobbyists. They have more lobbyists on Capitol Hill than um, in Congress and the Senate and the Supreme Court justices all combined. There's yeah. more lobbyists. So 
they really control the legislative process. They can completely control the agency. The agencies are um, sock puppets for the industry that are supposed to regulate. And they um, unfortunately control the press in our country too, because we changed the law in 1997 to allow pharmaceutical advertising on television. And now, you know, Roger Ailes, who started Fox News, told me that during non-election years, um, for certain segments on his evening news, that pharmaceutical ads were 70% of the revenue. And he said, you know, we cannot put anything on TV that is critical of vaccines because of that. It's just that simple. It's and, so, uh, it's uh, a they, quid pro uh, quo, as they say. Yeah. And, they, yeah. you know, all that money has not just given a platform for advertising these products, but it also has allowed these companies to dictate content. Yes. Uh, Anderson Cooper is now really not a journalist anymore. He's a pharmaceutical rep. And yes. Yes. He makes $12 million a year and probably $10 million of that comes from pharmaceutical companies indirectly. Oh, my so God. it's very, very, you know, I'm basically all of the agencies and all of the institutions in our democracy that normally would stand between a vulnerable child and a greedy corporation have been sure. eliminated or neutralized. And, you know, so that, in other words, we really don't, we don't really have a media anymore to speak of as the watchdog of power, which of course is one of its primary purposes uh, yeah, because they, they're in bed and they've been in bed for a long time, but it really has worsened so much so that the media looks as simply like a cheerleader. And that brings us around to this whole matter of vaccines regarding COVID. And so if you watch the, na- the nightly news, you would think that these statistics about cases and fatalities and the like are accurate and you will get appropriately upset and scared and nervous. And some people feel prompted then to want to get the vaccine since that's the, um, you know, the treatment du jour. But could you shed some light on these areas for us so people can get another view of what the actual facts are? Well, we don't advise people either to get the vaccine or not to get the vaccine. We don't give advice. We oh, I understand. Give information. We try to say, oh, here's the information that the government ought to be providing us. And so that individual, because really the, the choice to vaccinate is, is there are many, many go variables and they include you know, which vaccine is the safest for you. Mm-hmm. We don't have any of that data. Um, which are, you know, what is the risk profile to each group? People with comorbidities like obesity. Yes. Uh, people, seniors who really have a very strong risk, a high risk from COVID. Sure. Um, and also a high risk from the vaccine. And, um, and then people who are very, very young who have almost no risk from COVID. The, the infection fatality rate is less, probably at 10, the rate of the seasonal flu, it's 0.000040 and a one. Whereas in the older age group, it could be 7%, which is huge, much bigger than the seasonal flu. Sure. And then, um, so, you know, but we don't really know what the risk is from COVID because that's been clouded too. 
um, you know, by these data gathering techniques that say anybody who dies with COVID in their system is a COVID death. Even though CDC admits that only 6% of those deaths are had only COVID, the other 94%, it was a 3.8%. Um, Each one of those people had an average of 3.8 comorbidities that were potentially lethal. And so we don't know what the real death rate is. We don't know the answer to the question, why are Americans dying more than any other country? Why is it that in Cuba, which was one of the most infected nations, only 14 people out of 100,000 died. And in our country, it's 1,500 per 100,000, so more than 10 times. Why is it African countries that African Blacks are dying at about the rate, in many countries, only one per 100,000, where in our country, the rate is um, for Blacks higher than anybody. So nobody's trying to answer, nobody trying to answer the very, very important questions. And then we yeah. don't know, you know, the, the, uh, the clinical trials were very short and they, they are incapable of capturing long-term injuries. For sure. There were not people in those trials who had a lot of comorbidities and particularly there weren't a lot of people in the older age group. So you don't, you know, the, the, the opportunity to assess risk prior to the marketing of these vaccines, the emergency use authorization was almost nil. And, you know, this idea that, well, we will see injuries and deaths as we do this population-wide experiment with these unapproved vaccines um, is a canard. You, you are not going to see the deaths because there is, and the injuries because there is no functioning surveillance system unless you're methodically collecting every death Sure. And then comparing that to background rates for deaths per 100,000. For example, in our country, if um, the historically in the group between 75 years old and 85 years old, out of every 100,000 people in that age group, 12 die a day. Now that's the natural causes. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to collect all the data from people who die immediately after vaccination. And see if, you know, for example, after the Pfizer vaccine, if 50 people are dying per day, which is quite possible of what we're seeing anecdotally. And then you look at the Pfizer vaccine and you say, well, only 12 people are dying from that. And the health agency could say to people who are seniors, you know, you better take the Pfizer vaccine and, and stay away from Moderna. But none of that data is getting out there and we don't have it. And the CDC position is that anybody who dies with COVID in their system died from COVID, even if they died in a car accident. Mm-hmm. And anybody who dies following vaccination, vaccines weren't involved. And CDC had literally said that. There's no evidence, even though 1,600 people have been reported dead, and, you know, within um, very, very fast after the vaccine. Uh, they, the CDC says we investigated them all and none of them are vaccine related. But there is no way that that could have happened. There is no way when people die of a vaccine, there's no fingerprint that the vaccine leaves. Uh, somebody who dies of a heart attack after vaccination, you don't know whether they would have died anyway or whether the vaccine that triggered that heart attack. The heart attack does not look any different 
even if you do a full autopsy, there's no way to tell. The only thing you can do, that, for example, I did an article that said Hank Aaron's death was one of many following vaccines. I didn't say it was from the vaccine because nobody can say that. Mm-hmm. But I said that there are a lot of deaths that are being reported immediately after vaccination. And his is one of those. And I got hammered by all of the networks. I, you know, uh, um, Inside Edition, the New York Times, and they all said, a copy of the New York Times report was, which is that the Fulton County coroner Atlanta had determined that Hank Aaron's death was unrelated to vaccination. So I said to myself, as I was getting hammered, I, I said, you know, and that Instagram removed me, even though I didn't put it on Instagram. They I heard that on, Instagram removed you for quoting the CC, CDC's own documents. Yeah. So um, I called out the Fulton County coroner. And I said, how in the world did you make this determination? Because I've never heard of anybody being able to make it. And they said, we never saw Hank Aaron's body. We never did an autopsy. There was no postmortem. The New York Times just made it up. And everybody copied them. And, you know, I got ejected from social media. But the fact is, what they need to be doing is collecting all the deaths following vaccination and then showing us the data and not patronizing us, not being condescending, not saying we're going to hide data and makes people scared of vaccines and we're going to give them data that, that makes them want to take the vaccine. And, you know, people know that they're being manipulated. Absolutely. It is, you know, and that's why we have vaccine hesitancy. It's not because people love Donald Trump and, you know, are doing whatever he tells them to do. It's because people have legitimate questions and know that we're manipulated. And deserve legitimate answers. Uh, These are life-threatening matters here that we're staring at, you know? It's crazy. Um, What is your... I need to hop off now because I... Oh, because we're out of time. Yes. Well, look, we have just barely touched the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So I would love to have you back when you're not as pressured with all that you're doing. Is that a workable scenario? Of course. Beautiful. Anytime. Really good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks so much for the good work you're doing. Keep it up. We're behind you. Thank you. As are so many. Absolutely. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I would certainly recommend that you see the film. Go to the website, childrenshealthdefense.org. The film is actually right there. And you can see it for yourself and learn about what the work is that Bobby and his team are doing because it's groundbreaking, it's rational, it asks the hard-hitting questions that we all need answers to very legitimately. And it's not a matter of being anti-vax, as I say to my friends oftentimes, uh, when they say, did you take your vaccine, my vaccine? I say, oh, I'll take a vaccine once it's proven to be safe and efficacious. No problem, I'll certainly consider it, but that hasn't happened yet. And uh, so therefore no vaccine for me, but uh, certainly there is nothing conceptually about it that I wouldn't be interested in if it helps to literally save lives and protect people and be more efficacious than natural means or even other medical means that we know are available. So on that note, I wanna just thank you all for listening today and I hope you go and visit 
childrenshealthdefense.org, see the film and share it with others because we're at this critical moment in human history actually. And there's a lot of danger and there's a lot of propaganda being foisted out there. And it is up to us to truly discern and think through these matters without labeling each other anti-vaxxers or what have you, but really to scrutinize the data as Bobby was really strongly recommending and looking also at a very serious question that I really like to ask here, which is who do we trust and why? Look at a track record, look at the subject even of forgiveness, look at justice and look at that deep question that we all have to ask ourselves of who do we trust who is the authority in our minds and hearts and why? This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us today. Visit us at our website, www.abetterworld.tv. Spread this as well to your friends, family, and colleagues so more people can get the benefit. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.